It is February 23rd. Our message today is called The Servant of the Lord. If you show up today and you sang and you worshiped and you felt the presence of God, that would be good. But what would be even better is if you were fed something from heaven that made a difference in your day starting now and carried you through to the next week. I don't intend to starve you out spiritually. I don't intend to serve you yesterday's bread. I brought you something from the throne room that is blessing me, and I pray it will bless you. Could you turn to Isaiah 42? Say there when you're there. In the first four verses of Isaiah 42, we're going to find our text today. Now, as usual, I'm going to go all over the place in the Bible, but we will always come back to Isaiah 42. So if you have a bookmark, put it right there. Amen. Are y'all going to be all right today? You're not. I didn't scared you off or put you to sleep yet. Okay. In Isaiah 42, here comes the first verse. Here is my servant whom I uphold. What a mouthful. In these first few words, we find out most of what you need to know about any servant of God. He's upheld by God or he's not a servant of God. This is really important because those he elects, he ruthlessly perfects. You're a constant work in progress. The enemy of your faith is self-reliance. The enemy of your faith is the tendency to lean upon your own arm. If you belong to God, you're upheld by him and him alone. Somebody say amen. Amen. Now you've said amen, which means so be it unto God. But I know you and you know me. Everything in your being will kick against being at the mercy of God. We would much rather have our ducks in a row, have all that we need, do our little census and have our accounting so that faith is excluded. You need to know that for the rest of our lives, we're going to have a choice between two kinds of denial. You can deny your flesh or you can deny Christ. But there is no middle ground. There is no sum of both. If we're in Christ, we're upheld by him. And if he doesn't uphold you, then you would fall flat. If you can stand on your own two feet, then he's not your master, he's not your Lord, and he's not your Savior. Because you don't need a Savior if you stand just fine by yourself. So if you came in here today a little broken, a little beat up, the good news is we're in great hands. So church, a servant of God is upheld by him. Is that good news? Maybe a great example from the Older Testament of a man who was upheld by God comes from 2 Chronicles. It will be the 14th chapter. Say there when you're there. And we're going to read the 11th verse. You know, I always wondered, you can go into Walmart still today and see remnants of the great marketing program behind the prayer of Jabez. We had the prayer of Jabez for teens, the prayer of Jabez for the lost, (laughs) the prayer of Jabez for those with gray hair, those with no hair, those with short hair. I mean, they found something that would sell and they sold it. But you've never seen the prayer of Asa on anybody's wall. Asa in verse 11, 
called out to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. How many of you would like to think of yourselves as powerless? Oh, goodness, we're Americans. You know, most of us have five or six guns, two checking accounts, more than one car. Some of you even have extra food put away somewhere just in case. And let hurricane season come by and you'll store water and batteries. Anything except powerless. But friends, when we're powerless, oh, then we get a chance to be upheld by our God. Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the, what's it say? Man, if you got to square off with somebody, you certainly don't want them to be described as mighty. You know, maybe uh, maybe you could take anything else. I, I'd prefer somebody who is described as atrophied, you know, emaciated, weak, lethargic. Like, I'd like to foot race a sloth, you know, something. But what kind of God takes powerless people and has them face the mighty? the kind that wants to display his glory in them. Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rely on you. Oh, what are you relying on today, church? My household is relying on the living God. When you get a phone call and your wife is not making any sense, careful men, I mean she's not making any sense because she's ill incoherent. Jen, where are you at? Uh, I'm in Texas. Yes, sweetheart, are you in the house? Where, where are you at? Yeah, I think so. Jennifer, are you in the bedroom? Where are you at? Where are the children? I don't know. She was delirious. Dehydrated. You know where I was? If you stick... If you stick a rod through the globe, starting right here, let's just, let's start in India. Let's say you're in Chennai and you stick a rod right through the globe. You know where it comes out? It comes out just west of San Antonio. I was literally on the other side of the planet and my wife doesn't even know where she's at. She's so sick. What are you going to rely on? At the same time, because it's 2 o'clock in the morning there, a demoniac in the city square begins hurling insults at me and is literally on the other side of a wrought iron gate yelling and cursing. And I saw a perfect outlet for the rage that was already growing in me. But what are you going to rely on? Amen. We rely on the living God. I said, Lord... I'm full of fury at the moment and I don't even know where to direct it. I'm scared and I don't even know what to do with it. But I trust you. You are a very good God. And then I remembered, yes, and the devil is a very bad devil. I found my outlet for fury now. Lord, show me how to pray because my family is on the line. She didn't stay in the hospital six hours. Church, when you're powerless and your enemy seems mighty, 
you find out whether or not God upholds you. It's good to be upheld by God. The health, wealth, and prosperity church will never learn the secret to the power of God because they're too full of their own power. They're too full of their own resources. The gospel is for the poor because they're powerless. And it teaches us to overcome the mighty. The Bible is the story of the underdog. It's the story of the one who doesn't have and God sustains. It's the story of the one who can't and yet he does. For us, friends, there are three categories. There is the difficult, there is the impossible, and there is the I just did it. And there is nothing in between because we're upheld by our God. Are you upheld by the Lord this morning? Come on, are you upheld by the Lord this morning? I'm not asking you if you're upheld by Barack Obama. I'm not asking you if your hopes are set on the Republican Party. I'm asking you if the Lord of glory has you in his hands. Oh, church, if you really believe that, then what can't you do? What in the world can you not do? Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rely on you. And in your name, we have come against this teeny army. No, it's vast. They're mighty and they're vast. Christians are the minority in every country. In India, they say they're the minority. In America, Christians are a majority. How deceived. Servants of God are a minority everywhere we are. How many people do you know that want to live like Christ in heaven but do not live like Christ on the earth? Christians are a minority everywhere because they're not upheld by God. They don't delight in God. They delight in their own arm and they masquerade as believers. But when you are upheld by the Lord, you can face the mighty and laugh. You can look at the vast army and say, bring some more. Bring as many as you have because my God is that big. Like the spirit that filled David, you can say you come against me with sword and javelin, but I come against you with the host of heaven. You know what? I'm pretty sure that demoniac is still a captive somewhere, and I'm pretty sure the devil is still trying to kill people in Chennai, but my wife's well and sitting here in church. Where are the enemies that stood against you 10 years ago today? Where are their lies, their slander? Where is all of that today? See, the saints of God endure because we're upheld by God. Look at this next line. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. Can we agree that we don't want man to prevail against God? Can we agree? Don't you be the man that is trying to prevail against God because you don't rely on Him. Cursed is the man who leans on his own right arm. One of the things that the Lord does to us in America is He uses our house, He uses our health, and He uses our wealth to test us. When you don't know where you're going to live, when you don't know if you're going to live, when the major events of our life are squeezing us, it's a chance to be upheld by God. The only way you'll ever know whether everything you have is his or not is if it's put on the line somewhere. Everybody pledges Isaac, nobody raises the knife. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
You know, it wouldn't have been much of a test for Abraham if he knew ahead of time how it was going to turn out. But he didn't. He just knew the character of his God. I don't know ahead of time how things are going to turn out in some instances. I just sat with an elder and his wife in our church. I don't know how many more needle pricks there's going to be. I don't know how many more infusions there's going to be. What I know is she's upheld by the living God. And as many as they have for her, she can take that and a hundred more because she's upheld by God. I know that there's spiritual steel in the woman. I know that we are not weak, not crushed, not defeated because we're in the hands of of a living God. I know that cancer is not too big for us. I know that no infirmity has ever raised its face against God and won. I know that. So while I'm concerned about what someone has to endure, I'm not at all concerned about the outcome because we can endure. Come on, church, say I'm victorious because I'm upheld by God. My my trust is not in myself. It's in the King of kings. A servant of God is upheld by God. Do you believe me? Oh, then church this week, act like you believe me. Let's finish the first verse, or at least attempt to. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Oh, man. In whom I delight. What does God say about his chosen one? What's he say? In whom I delight. What a special thing it is to know that God delights in you. I'm going to tell you the truth. Sometimes I don't like you. Sometimes you don't like me. But God delights in you. You know, men are fickle. Just men, not women. Just men. Men are fickle. When you do what they think you should, they love you. But it takes a special person to love you when you're doing what they know you shouldn't. God delights in you. Let that sink in for a second. How many of you have viewed God as an angry God? He's been waiting to get you. You got, how many of you have listened to corpulent preachers stand behind their pulpits and lie and treat God like a mob boss that if you don't buy off with a tithe, he's going to get you? God have mercy on their souls. He delights in us. He upholds us and his delight is not found in the animal kingdom. His delight is not found in the starry host. His delight is found in the one whom he upholds. It turns out that he's a pretty good savior and he likes doing it. He likes upholding you and he delights in upholding you. You know, Paul said something in Galatians, the first chapter and the 10th verse. Turn there when you can. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. In this body of believers, there has to be an infilling of the Spirit that is like the Spirit that was inside of Joseph. 
Joseph had a choice. Do I win the approval of my brothers or do I win the approval of my father? God delights in the man he upholds and you can almost never please both men and God. The two are usually juxtaposed to each other. I've chosen to be the kind of man that God will delight in. And I tell you, I sleep well at night because of it. You can know when you leave this building today that not only is he happy with you, he delights in you. Where's Abby? This is my girl. I don't just like Abby. I love her. And I don't just love her. I delight in her. I enjoy spending time with her. I like... Now, you guys don't judge me too harshly. I like to sit and brush her hair. I like to put her on my lap and bounce her on my knee. I dance with her when nobody else is around. Sometimes I dance with her when you're around. I delight in her. How have you thought the Lord feels about you? He delights in the one he upholds. He delights. Church, we need to work for his approval. We need to work for his delight to be in us. And you know what he likes? He likes when you're dependent upon him. He likes that. It shows that you need him. It shows that you love him. It shows that you appreciate him. It shows that he's your God. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. We'll have to come back to that. And he will bring justice to the nations. The real servant of God is always outward focused. He knows he's upheld by God. He knows God delights in him. And he can't wait to share that with everyone else. He brings justice to the rest of the world. It's been said that a visionary without a task, I'm sorry, a vision without a task makes a visionary. A task without a vision makes drudgery. And a vision with a task makes a missionary. Church, what do you have a vision for? What fills your heart and mind? If you know God's delight is in you, if you know He upholds you, then resources are not a hindrance. Abilities are not a hindrance because He's upholding you and He delights in you. How can you not help but go tell? See, we want to bring to everyone else that feeling of divine favor that we have. It's not hard for me to step on a stage full of people who are idolaters, have demon-possessed. It's not hard for me to look out and see infirmities like you never see in this country because I know that God upholds me. I know He delights in me and He's looking for the opportunity to move through faith to demonstrate His kingdom because he wants them to know what I already have as a reality inside of me. Do you feel that way? Every Christian ought to feel like they're God's man of power for the hour. You really ought to have a sense that God wants to work through you because he does. He never called us to elect leaders and put them on ever heightening stages to be Christians for us. He wants you to want to step up to the plate. He wants you to put your faith on the line. He wants you 
to be upheld by him, for you to delight in him as much as he delights in you, and he wants you outward focused. During our worship service today, did you think of a relative who needs him? Did you think of a neighbor who needs him? What are you going to do about it? I have some great friends that were saved around the same time as I was. They're still preparing for ministry. Well, God bless them. If they're not prepared after 20 years, I don't know when they'll ever be prepared. I heard Charlie mention Danny Oss today. Let me ask you, if you're still preparing so that you're a competent conversant about the Christ, if you're still working your spiritual education so that one day you'll be prepared to go tell them what happens to them now while you prepare. See, they're dying every day all around us. There is not justice in the nations. There's demonic oppression and satanic spiritual abuse everywhere. And they're waiting for the sons of God to come and tell them you can be upheld by his power. You can know that he delights in you. And to make them work for him like you do. Oh, church, do you want to know what it is to be filled with his power? We have to focus on them and not ourselves. The most satanic thing that has happened in the last 50 years to the church is it has turned inward. A missions budget has become a token, a line item to simply say we have or we do. It's more of an advertisement than a mission. But the real church of the living God cares more about everyone else than you care about yourself. In fact, that's a mark of a servant of God. We have a chance to put that into practice every day. I saw just yesterday some of our brothers were helping someone move. Man, you find out who your friends are on moving day, don't you? I see all of the time that this body is working for the benefit of others. Saints, that's where strength is. That's where the power of God is. He will make up for your lack 100% of the time. How about verse 2? In verse 2, we find a fourth thing. He will not cry out, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. Christians are not braggadocious. We're not there to tell you how great we are. We're there to tell you how great he is. We're not self-promoting. You beware of men and women who are telling you how great they are. And as long as as I am one of the pastors in this church, there will never be another time a man comes to prophesy to everybody here and tells you what a great prophet he is. Had I been more of a man of God, I'd have shut him up when he said it. We try to be merciful. But it is not God to be self-promoting, ever. In fact, when you think of self-promoting, understand that the greatest men of God in history didn't do that. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, you don't have to turn there. He said, although I am less than the least of the apostles. What did he say about himself? I'm less than the least of the other ministry workers. He was a young man when he said it in his middle ages. In Ephesians 3, 8, he said, I'm least of all God's people. 
That's less than the least of the apostles. I'm not just the least among the Christian workers. I'm the least among all of God's people. And at the end of his life in 1 Timothy, the first chapter, 15th verse, he said, I am the worst of sinners. Let me ask you, was Paul more powerful than Christ at the end of his life or the beginning? What did he think of himself at the end? It turns out that in Christianity, the further you step down to debase yourself, the higher God will raise you. We're not the kind that shout in the streets or cry out in self-promotion. We're upheld by God and we know it. You can have that silent kind of confidence that says you can push, you can bark, you can huff and puff and try to blow the house down, but you don't know who upholds me. The devil is loud. He's threatening. He's a bully. He lies. It's his native tongue. And he's all the time trying to magnify situations bigger than they are to get you to have a permanent choice for a temporary problem. If you let him, he'll talk you into killing yourself. That's his goal is to steal from you, to kill you, and to destroy you. Quit talking to him. Instead, have a silent confidence that smiles and says, I can handle that and whatever else you have because I'm upheld by the Almighty God and I have something you don't, devil. He delights in me. That really burns you, doesn't it? Let me dance around some. He delights. I am daddy's boy and you are a reject. One of the brothers preaching said the spiritually unemployed No food stamps for the devil. I'm now pausing to avoid the next political joke. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. Could you read Philippians 2.3 with me? You know, I read this saying in India. It said, knowledge is proud that he has learned so much. And wisdom is humble that he knows no more. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. The difference between the self-promoting and those who are serving Christ is the self-promoting work to make sure everyone understands how great they are. But the servant of Christ is working to make sure everyone understands how great Christ is. Men like Jim Elliott began their meetings by apologizing. You know, Jim Elliott gave his life for the gospel. He's the originator of the quote, he is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Not exactly a spiritually slack person. And do you know how he began his meetings? He said, I want to apologize to you today for being such an ordinary, broken man because I'm here to represent an extraordinary, miraculous, all-powerful God. And I do but a poor job of it. Needless to say, he loved not his life so much to shrink back from death, and we consider him a hero because he knew what he was, a regular man upheld by God. Church, there's no limit to what we can do. There is no limit to what we can do for Christ. The servant of the Lord. 
He says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. Now, Brother Michael preached about this when he first got here. And it was, it was a good message. I want to confess that Michael has understood this verse better than I have for some time. And I was in India and I was wrestling with it. Lord, I need you to show me bruised reed. I just, you know, it's not really in my vocabulary. It's not something I really understand. And I don't just have a great deal of experience with smoldering wicks. You know, is there anybody here that has ever read this verse and gone, oh, great, a bruised reed and a smoldering wick, and you didn't know immediately what he was talking about? As I began flipping through the word, I turned to Mark 10. And in Mark 10, I realized what a bruised reed looks like. I realized what a smoldering wick looks like. Start with me in verse 46. Say there when you're there. Oh, goodness gracious. Are y'all sleeping? Are you you refusing to go? What's happening? Are you a bruised reed? (laughs) Are you a smoldering wick? You're about to go out right now? Come on, help a preacher out. Are you going to go with me? Say, I'm with you, pastor. (laughs) Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving that city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Why did they shut him up? Why did they rebuke him? He's got an infirmity. He has a great need and he knows it. There's a brother I love very much. In recent years, we haven't talked as much, but we used to get together on every Thursday night and we prayed. Now imagine, we've gone through all of those things where we're, Our hearts are right. Our lives are right. There's no unconfessed sin ready to be pulled out of a closet. And we're going to have a Pentecostal, spirit-filled, powerful prayer time, right? And he begins, stand up, Brenton. He begins praying with me and he says, Oh, God, forgive me. I am so full of pride and selfishness. I'm looking around like, oh, man, if he's saying that, what does that mean about me? (laughs) Praying with the brother was so convicting because he knew right where his own weaknesses were, and he wasn't scared to cry out for help. You know, healthy people, or at least people that think they're healthy, don't like to be around the infirmed. Have you ever noticed, men? How many of you in here are over 40? Give me a hand if you're over 40. Okay. Men over 40. At some point in your life, one of your buddies been in the hospital, and you meant to go see him. I mean, you were going to go. I mean, if I just get the time, I'm going to get there. And you didn't. 
he was like, I don't, I, you know, I don't know why I knew I, he was going to be okay. No, you didn't want to see somebody just like you in a powerless situation because what it does to you inside breaks you up. It lets you know your own mortality is right around the corner. It lets you know that your own weakness is no di- And you'd rather live with the illusion that I'm okay, you're okay. Let's, let's not go there, right? I've noticed this about men more than any other. When my daddy was in the hospital, y'all know I stayed with him some time. All his buddies would call and call. And they said, well, you know, I don't know whether I should come. I said, no, of course you do, come. Well, it's just that, uh, yeah, stop talking and get in the car. Uh, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not upset they didn't come. I know why they didn't come. Gary was among the strongest. He was one of the brightest. He was one of the most competent. And they didn't want to see him in a degraded state because it says something inside about them. You know why the crowd tried to shut Bartimaeus up? Because Bartimaeus knew what he needed and he wasn't scared to ask. And if he needed something, maybe they did too. Have you ever noticed if we give an altar call, nobody comes until one comes? And if one comes and there's a bunch of little rabbits following behind who were too scared to go by themselves, but now that Bar- now, now that Joel did, uh, now we can do it. Why is that? You know why it is. We don't see ourselves rightly sometimes. It took a blind man to see what he needed. How is he a Bruce Reed, a smoldering wick? He knew that he couldn't stand without his Lord. He knew that his fire was going to go out without his Lord. And you know what? The servant of God, he doesn't crush those kind. He's full of compassion. Look what Jesus did for Bartimaeus. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up. On your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight. What does it mean in Isaiah to say a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out? It means that a man who knows where his weakness is receives compassion. And mercy. He's not here to crush you. He delights in you. He'll make you strong. He'll help you overcome the weakness that you bring and lay at his feet. He didn't show up as the conqueror. He showed up as the Savior. And those who thought they were healthy hated him for it. They didn't need a Savior. They needed a conqueror. You know, church... And all of our victorious preaching, we need to never get past the fact that were it not for the mercy of God, your weaknesses would have already dragged you down to the depths of hell. And by weaknesses, I mean your monstrous, wretched sin and mine too. But he didn't come to step on the flower that was already bent. He didn't come to put out the fire that was already smoldering. He came to fix it. Aren't you glad we serve a God like that? He's compassionate. Look at verse 4. Speaking of the servant of God, he will not falter or be discouraged. 
till he establishes justice on the earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. Talk with me honestly for just a minute. Falter or be discouraged. You know, so many people set out to do a thing and they say, you know, Brother Michael, God's called me and I'm going to go do it. And then it rains. And, and you know, maybe he called me to start next week. Oh, we talk such a good game and we alleviate all pressure by our good promises. But the servant of God doesn't falter and he's not discouraged until it's done. See, there have been some iron-headed human beings that work for God. Maybe even still. But those who accomplish something for the Lord... They hear what he says to do and then they don't care what they have to endure between the time they start and the time they finish because he said to do it. You show me a man easily discouraged and I'll show you a man that is not fit to lead and that will never accomplish anything for God. Falter, turn to the left or right. The Lord has said to go from point A to point B. Ooh, there's resistance. Maybe you want me to go to E. Oh, there's reason. It's probably F. You know, Z's just as good. And you finish somewhere other than where he told you to go, proclaiming yourself to be a servant the entire time. We have a job to do, saints. Don't become discouraged. When you're broken, who upholds you? When you when you feel discouraged, whose delight is in you? His is. You know. Nobody said you had to be perfect. You just have to be persistent. Be persistent in working after perfection and he'll credit it to you. But if you're a part-time Christian in love with him on Sunday, maybe on Wednesday and the rest of the time, you know, discouraged, down in the dumps, faltering all over the place, you'll never accomplish anything for God. Never. We're going to leave a legacy behind us when this is over. I want it to be a good one, don't you? Do you want people to say he started a good race? You want people to say, boy, that brother grabbed hold of the deep things of God. Oh, great. What did he do? Write commentaries? I mean, what did he do? See, at the end of the day, sheep and goats are separated by what they did and did not do. At the end of the day, The things that echo through an eternity are the deeds that were done in faith prompted by love. That's where it's at. Have you ever been to a man's house that started to paint a wall but didn't finish? (laughs) And you went out, hey, how about this one? You pull up to a yard that's half cut. If the mower didn't break, the human being did, right? Who starts to cut the grass and doesn't finish it? You know? What if you set out to go on a trip, but after hour one, you said, you know, I'm not sure I want to go anymore, and you went back a a mile or two. And then said, well, I know God did call me to go. I'll go. And then an hour two, you went back. You never finish. If there's anything that I've noticed in the charismatic community, if that's what we are, I don't know what we are, in in the body of Christ, is that we use God as an excuse 
like he changed his mind and it makes me sick. We're never wrong. We never sinned and gave up and quit. Instead, we simply said, you know, it's a new season and God's doing something new. Forgive me, but I think we're just cowards who are lying about our own inadequacy. It'd be a whole lot better to say, you know, he called me to do it and I screwed up. I got discouraged and I went home when I should have showed up, but I'm going to repent right now. And instead, we don't hear that. We hear a new prophecy. We hear a new word of encouragement from somewhere else saying there's an easier way. Where's Brent? A sword option. It makes me sick. And they usually come from those who have never walked right, who have never completed anything themselves, and they're happy to give you that kind of word because it's the same that they live by. Their lives are controlled by license plates and cloud formations and words from God that are not words from God because it allows them to be masters of their own life. But a servant of God, he's not easily discouraged. He doesn't falter. Now, does that mean that great men like Jim Elliott, I mentioned William Carrier, that he was never discouraged? Really? Have you ever read in James, a double-minded man is unstable in all he does and will never be blessed? Have you ever read that? I thought, oh God, there's no hope for me. I'm damned. Just, let's just be honest. I've read your book and I'm damned. I might as well give up now. I looked into a double-minded man. It means the man who sets out to plow turns around and gives up thinking it not worth it. That's different than the man who's plowing going, am I doing any good here? Is it, is it working? I'm not sure I'm good at this, but at least I'm still moving forward. Saints, you might be crippled, but move in the direction God sent you in. Never stop. Persistence is another word for faith. Determination is another way to say, I'm full of the Holy Ghost, because it wouldn't be in you otherwise. Servants of God are not easily discouraged. That's my best excuse for being stubborn. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. I told you I'd only cover four verses. So let me recap these for you. In the first verse, a servant of God is upheld by God. A servant of God is one in whom God's delight is on. A servant of God is one who is outward focus. In verse 2, the fourth one, he is humble. In verse 3, he is compassionate. He doesn't break bruised reeds. In verse 4, he's determined. Could you read with me Acts 21, 14? Let's look at a determined man. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said the Lord's will be done. What can you say, church, that your father told you to do? That every brother you had disagreed with you and stood and said, don't do it. Don't do it, but you wouldn't give up because you heard from God. See, the apostle Paul we love so much, Luke turned on him. Timothy (coughs) turned on him. Silas turned on him. Agabus turned on him. And in this chapter, they begged him not to go where Jesus told him to go. But they couldn't dissuade him because a servant of God, it does not falter or get easily discouraged. 
Do you know what he says to him? Why are you breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to go to Jerusalem, but I'll die there. Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Have you found that calling that you would die for? Because unless you're willing to deny your life, you never really accept Christ. There's two kinds of denial. Denial of self or denial of Christ. I love the Apostle Paul. He's a great example of the servant. We see that our dependence is in God. We see that His approval is upon us. We see that we're to be outward focused, humble, compassionate, and determined. But the best of all of them, the seventh attribute, if you will, is back in the first verse. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit upon him. Church, nothing that I've just preached about in all those previous six points is something that you're capable of doing unless he anoints you to do it. How many of you can stand under a car that is hanging from a crane knowing that it's about to be released without moving? It's not in our nature, is it? Not flinch when somebody's throwing a punch is not in our nature, is it? Not run when a gun comes out. It's not in our nature. We can preach all day long about being upheld by God, but you will never put yourself at the mercy of God unless His Spirit is in you to help you do it. We can preach all day long about having God delight in you and you delight in Him, but you really can't make that feeling real unless His Spirit's in you. About being outward focused, but you can't do it unless His Spirit is there empowering you to witness. How important is the Spirit of God? I have just a couple minutes left. I want to share with you about the power of the Spirit of God. Do you have a couple minutes for me? I came all the way from India to preach this to you. Just a couple minutes. How many of you are spirit-filled? Raise your hand if you're spirit-filled. Now, when you ask a group of people that, it depends on where you're at as to what it means. In the Baptist church, it simply means you're saved. Because if you're saved, you got all the spirit you'll ever have. If you're in the Catholic church, it means that a priest waved his hand over you after you were confirmed and you received the Holy Ghost. In a Pentecostal church, it might mean, depending on the variety of Pentecostals, that you came out of the water and you spoke some unintelligible words. Spirit-filled church, whatever that means. It might mean that you had some kind of second blessing with the Holy Ghost subsequent to salvation where there was a manifestation of a spirit. But let me challenge you wherever you're at in that spectrum about being spirit-filled. One of the ways you know whether you're spirit-filled is are you truly led by His Spirit? Do you remember Philip? Philip who becomes Philip the Evangelist? Philip starts a revival in Samaria. You can read about that in Acts 8. Anybody know what I'm talking about? How many of you remember the Brownsville revival? Let's suppose for a minute that Brother Stephen Hill, y'all know who he is? If you're not a symbol of God, you can look it up later. 
I was never assemblies of God. Doesn't mean I don't love some of the things they did. The height of that revival. Thousands and thousands of people are waiting in line to hear them preach and feel the presence of God. Am I lying? What if Stephen looked out that day and said, hmm, I'm leaving. It didn't happen. Men don't leave revivals when they're in the middle of a revival. That's what you work your whole life to hope to see. Am I wrong? Charles Finney, one of the greatest American revivalists there ever was. There's no record of him being in the middle of a revival. Souls coming to the altar, getting saved right there. And he goes, ah, (laughs) I got to go. What if every man, woman, and child got up in this building and said, I want to be filled with the Holy Ghost now. You rush the altar. And I said, eh, I'm leaving. What would you think? Because the Spirit of God told Philip to leave the Samaritan revival and go to a particular road. Could you put Acts 8.29 on the screen? The Spirit, this is after that. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. He's told him to leave Samaria. He's told him to go to a specific road. And now the Spirit says, go to that chariot. How stupid, right? How ineffective. Leave a revival. Go to a dusty street corner somewhere. And do why? To go approach a chariot? And yet we get our first Ethiopian convert out of it. Does the Spirit of God lead you? to do things that are counterintuitive? Does he lead you to leave what looks like success and go after the single life? Let me ask you, how effective was it? It was only one person. He left thousands in Samaria. It was only one person. But it was the key to a nation. It was the key to a nation. The power of the Holy Ghost shows us how to unlock the nations of the world. And does it surprise you, life-changing ministries, that it started one life at a time? The Spirit of God had the right to uproot Philip from a revival and send him after a single soul. When's the last time the Spirit of God led you in something like that? We're Spirit-filled. How about this one? In Acts 10, verse 19 through 20. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Why would Peter have hesitated? Come on. Who in the room's not white today? If you're not a whitey, you're not a cracker, raise your hand. Now, some of you lying or you don't know what I'm talking about. If you're not white, raise your hand. Somebody besides Matthew's hand should be up. Peter was filled with the Holy Ghost but still had some prejudice. And the Spirit of God dealt with his prejudice and guess where he told him to go? How effective is that, you know? Shouldn't the Spirit of God have picked somebody who had already dealt with those things? Somebody who never had those things? But how effective was it? We get our very first Gentile convert to Christianity. 
That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Doesn't the Spirit of God have the right to take a man who's prejudiced and send him to who he's prejudiced against? He does. What does it mean to be Spirit-led? In Acts 13, verses 1 through 4, the Holy Ghost scheduled the first missions trip. We're not going to read those. In Acts 16 and verse 6, put that one on the screen. Is it right to preach? Steph, is it right to preach? Do we live to preach? When you see somebody who needs the gospel, what do you want to give them? Lindsay, what do you want to give them? You want to give them the good news. Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. You mean the Holy Ghost has got the right to tell you no? Not this one? But he did it, didn't he? You want to know if you're led by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God is on you? How many times does the Spirit of God tell you to do something that didn't occur to you naturally? And how effective was it when you did it? Are you hearing me, church? You want to be a servant of God? The Spirit of God has got to be upon you. You have to know that you're upheld by Him and none other. See, that frees you from needing to justify your choices to everyone. You have to know that His delight is in you. You have to be focused on everybody else more than yourself. You can't be self-promoting, but you must be compassionate. In your compassion, living God will work through that. Oh, man. I preached about the servant of God on my first trip back from India because it's what we're to raise up. It's what we're to raise up. And we're doing it. And some of you are coming with us and some not so much. But you're still here. I hadn't managed to run you off yet. I believe that in the next 20 years, now I know every evangelical pastor in the world saying we're not going to go 20 years because whoever they do or don't like is in office or, you know, they interpret Bible prophecy by the headlines in the newspaper. And God bless them. They've been wrong for a hundred years. They'll probably be wrong for another hundred years. They don't interpret the signs of the times any better than the Pharisees did when Jesus was talking to them. I think in the next 20 years, though, we're going to see two things happen. We're going to see a gradual decrease in this nation and a gradual increase in the power of God and its people. America's greatest prosperity might be behind it, but its greatest spiritual power is yet to be tapped. There is a battle coming. And it has to do with the spiritual forces of darkness that stand between Jerusalem and India and China. It's revival in India and China. And the gospel must go all the way to Jerusalem. And what stands between it now are men who cut the heads off of other men and think they're doing a service to God. And there has got to be servants of God who rise up and meet that challenge. We can't read books about the 1850s missionaries forever. At some point, it becomes our turn. And I believe from this group, we're going to see those men and women. I believe that. Could you stand to your feet? Could you put Acts 20? Verse 22 on the screen. 
The servant of God is one who is compelled by the Spirit. And now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. As servants of God, we are not easily discouraged or falter from what we're called to do. I'm going to ask that you seek God's face and feel compelled by His Spirit. And then enjoy. Friends, we will see what is difficult, what is impossible, become that which is done. And there's no in-between. Amen?